colleagues, and welcome to episode 28 of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. I am one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm a pediatric dermatologist and general dermatologist at the University of Utah. And joining me on the line is... <laughs> this is Michelle Tarbox. I am an associate professor of dermatology and dermatopathology in Lubbock, Texas at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center. Every two weeks, Dermosphere comes at you with some of the latest research that we think is especially useful for people practicing clinical dermatology. So we tend to discuss several articles that are out in the recent literature, and this episode is no different. And <laughs> Michelle has our first couple of articles. Yeah, so I'm going to talk about the first two articles as a pair, because one of them is a reevaluation of something that we all sort of hold near and dear, which are the ABCDs of melanoma. Um, and the second article is actually a commentary on the first. So starting off with the first article, uh, this is an article out of the JAD. And it was accepted in April of 2020, and it's titled Reevaluating the ABCD Criteria Using a Consecutive Series of Melanomas. The authors are Rebecca Liu, who is a Bachelor of Science, um, Laura K. Ferris, who is an MD-PhD at all. Uh, and this is a pretty well-done article. Um, it is published out of the University of Pittsburgh. Which and... is where I went to medical school. <laughs> woot, Go woot. Panthers! Pittman yeah, football so rules! I was going to make up a mascot, so I really appreciate you doing that. I was Pittsburghians. I'm not sure how to say that right. It's a lovely city. Dr. Uh, Ferris wrote me a letter of recommendation for residency. Thanks, Dr. Ferris. And I, as, as the former faculty member for Luke Johnson, I also say thank you, Dr. Ferris, because he was an excellent resident and he was a fabulous addition to our program. So all right, these... I think we've said all we need to in this episode. <laughs> so this article wants to look at those ABCD criteria. And I think that this is a very healthy thing to do. Um, in any discipline of science, certain things start to become dogma and they're passed along as sort of involuble wisdom that can't be argued against. And it's, it's I think, healthy for us to question things that we just hold as dogmatic, especially as our practices evolve. And so in this publication, they discuss the fact that that ABCD mnemonic um, has been utilized for a long time to describe the clinical features of melanoma which we all know are asymmetry, border irregularity, color variation, and diameter greater than six millimeters. Uh, they also kind of emphasize the fact that prior validation studies used photographs um, to help kind of clarify a clinician's suspicion for melanoma, and that could result in excluding clinical su clinically subtle, subtle lesions or non-pigmented lesions such as an amelanotic melanoma. They also point out that the ABCD criteria were defined before the real widespread use of dermoscopy, and so there may be differences in detection in current practices because of the utilization of that earlier diagnostic tool. In their practice, they note that all lesions are photographed before biopsy, which allowed them to evaluate the ABCDs using con uh, consecutive series of melanoma images, as well as descriptors and histopathology. So they reviewed 290 consecutive cases of primary cutaneous melanoma that had been diagnosed in the University of Pittsburgh Dermatology Department from 2014 to 2016. So and basically, they found these 200 and some odd things that were diagnosed as melanoma histopathologically and then went and looked back at the photographs that they had taken and said, what were the ABCDs like? Exactly. So they wanted to evaluate in a retrospective 
style, these lesions that had been ultimately pathologically diagnosed as a melanoma, either in situ or invasive, what was the prevalence of the ABCD features based upon clinical photography and clinical records? They also kind of broke the melanomas out into in situ, which comprised 159 of the cases, or about 55%, or in situ, which was 131 of the cases, or about 45%. For the invasive melanomas, their median Breslau thickness was about 0.55 millimeters, and they found that the prevalence of each ABCD characteristic was 85% for asymmetry, 85% for borders, 71% for color variation, and 60% for diameter greater than 6 millimeters. They then when we say borders, it's... Is border irregularity, like, does it have any more description than just irregular somehow? The way that I was taught uh, is that it often looks as if something has taken a bite out of the periphery of the lesion, uh, or it creates sort of a notch in the contour of the lesion. This can be complicated, though, because we know that in certain areas, especially the scalp or sig significantly hair-bearing areas, if you have a hair follicle at the edge of a mel melanocytic neoplasm, you might actually have something called perifollicular pigment dropout. And that can yield the impression of having an irregular border when it might not necessarily be there. Now, in the meat of the analysis in the paper I'm going to read next, which is actually a commentary on this first article, a publication by Thomas et al. that was performed in 1988, who also reported on the ABCDs, noted that in order, they were present in 57% uh, with asymmetry, 57% with borders, 65% with color variegation, and 90% with diameter greater than 6 millimeters. So in that study and in this study, asymmetry and borders were joined in their percentages of positivity in melanomas. And I think that that might have something to do with the fact that if you have a notch or an irregular border, that's going to contribute to overall lesion asymmetry. Some people who are advocates for what's called pattern analysis have actually tried to simplify this into just saying that the lesion is either orderly or chaotic. And that sort of chaos encompasses really both asymmetry and border irregularity. So I've also heard that referred to as beauty or the beast. Yes, beauty or the beast, which I love. Beauty and the beast, I think it's lovely. Uh, but I thought it was very interesting that the A's and B's had the exact same percentages in both this study and in the previous study of ABCD criteria that was done all the way back in 1988. So that is an interesting point to me. Uh, so in the evaluation here, though, they did assign one point per criterion and noticed that most melanomas scored either three ABCDs positive with 38% or four ABCDs positive with 41%. And so I thought that that was also interesting. They also were able to evaluate if the scores for ABCD were associated with greater um, difficulty of, of depth, um, more, you know, thickness or, or pigmentation versus amelanotic melanomas or with the method of detection, and they did not find a connection there. Um, they did also find about 4.5% of amelanotic melanomas, uh, six of which were invasive. And the invasive amelanotic melanomas had a deeper Breslau thickness, which is not terribly surprising. Uh, amelanotic melanomas are sort of the boogeyman that lives under the bed for us dermatologists because they're clinically very subtle and they do tend to be detected at a later stage so that deeper Breslau depth isn't terribly surprising. But what was surprising to me was that amelanotic melanomas didn't differ significantly in ABCD criteria compared to other melanomas within the sample. And so I think that color variegation would be difficult to perceive in a non-pigmented lesion, so I'm not sure if their criteria for color variegation included multiple shades of pink. I think it must have, or pink and, and scar. 
so I thought that was an interesting point. They make a, a good argument uh, utilizing actually that previous study by Thomas et al., which was published in 1988, who also reported on the prevalence of this ABCD characteristics. And remember, in that study, they found that 57% of their melanomas had asymmetry or border irregularity. Color abnormalities was present in 65, and 90% of the lesions that were diagnosed at that time in 1988 were greater than 6 millimeters. But I think a very good and salient point that the authors of this article point out is that uniform utilization of dermoscopy, which often allows us to pick up melanomas at an earlier stage when they are more clinically subtle, uh, wasn't widely used. And in fact, the first, um, you know, wide use of dermoscopy began in 1989 with Leon Goldman, uh, where he sort of coined the term of dermoscopy in 1989 at the Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich, and they developed a new device to allow for dermoscopy. Uh, I'm a bit of a derm history nerd. Uh, so the first utilization of the concept of the word dermoscopy was actually the coining of the word dermatoscopy by, by Real Safier in 1920. But the actual practice of dermoscopy wasn't really starting to become widespread until about 1989. So this earlier publication where the melanomas were all, were 90% were greater than six millimeters happened in a time when we didn't have anything greater really than our naked eye or maybe a magnifying glass to help us. And so I think it is a salient point to kind of address that as we evolve more sophisticated diagnostic techniques, the ways we detect melanoma might change. So the, in their data, they presented 40% of melanomas in their sample were small. They had a diameter of less than six millimeters, and that's been consistent with other recent studies. So they agreed with other authors that diameter must be used in combination with other characteristics to determine clinical suspicion. If you have a lesion that is otherwise asymmetric and very heavily pigmented um, and has potentially got some, you know, multiple irregular colors in there, you wouldn't necessarily write it off just because it was smaller than six millimeters. Uh, so I, I would they, not. Yeah, I think, well, and I think that they also um, reviewed the fact that the ABCDs, um, even in this dermoscopy area, you know, uh, did not kind of correlate with greater ABCD abnormalities without, with the exception of the diameter kind of qualifier. So I thought this was an interesting paper. Um, I thought that it kind of highlighted the shifting practice that we have now that we're utilizing techniques that do allow us to detect melanoma more um, simply and also earlier in its progress of uh, neoplasia. It's the, a pretty clever idea. Mm -hmm. um, a couple other points that I thought were interesting were they documented whether it was the physician or the patient who identified the lesion as potentially problematic, and it was basically split down the middle. So mm -hmm. about half of melanomas are discovered by the patients themselves or their family members, I guess, which is, I feel like, what I've been taught and still seems to be true. And then they had a small percentage, about 5% of melanomas, that didn't meet any of the ABCD criterias. So my guess is that that was one where the patient was just like, I swear this mole hasn't been here before. And mm -hmm. the physician was like, well, it looks totally fine, but if it really hasn't been there before, I guess we'll remove it. And then, bam, mm -hmm. melanoma. Well, and I think that that's an important thing to emphasize as well. I have had plenty of patients who are dysplastic nevi, patients that have tons of melanocytic nevi all over their body. And I have learned both as a resident and as a practicing attending, if a patient who has 200 moles comes in and points out one to you and says there's something wrong with this one, you should take that one off because that characteristic of having 
about half of melanoma is detected by the patient because they live in their skin every day and they know their bodies hopefully better than anybody else, you have to really listen to the patient's perspective on things. And you may end up biopsying something that's absolutely fine. And you know what? Nobody dies from that. But it's very important to listen to patients when they tell you something is wrong with a lesion and you can't be diagnostically certain that it's benign. Uh, so there was also a nice commentary on this article, kind of a rebuttal of sorts, but also just a reorganization of the data. Um, and this was performed as a comment um, on reevaluating the ABCDs criteria using a consecutive series of melanomas by Stuart Martin Goldsmith. And he pointed out, um, he, uh, he is from Florida State, so he should see his fair share of melanomas just like we do down here in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. Uh, but in his communication, he emphasized that he was concerned specifically that it would be perceived as another study supporting the ABCDE criteria, specifically the diameter criterion. When, right. He really know, doesn't like that if you read this commentary. He is not a fan of D for diameter, that's true, but he proposes an alternate solution so we may keep the mnemonic intact, which I think is very clever. Oh, good. Um, yes, yeah, so, so don't worry, they're not making it ABC something. It'll still be ABCD, but the D might just mean something differently to us moving forward. Darth? Uh, Darth, yes, close. You're, I mean, if you're speaking German, I guess it's kind of close. Like Schwarz um, means dark. Uh, so... After looking over the study by Liu et al., um, the concerns that he had were that 40, only 40%, sorry, that, um, that they had 40% of their melanomas that would not have been classified as a risky lesion for melanoma utilizing the diameter criteria alone. And that was, I think, a point of a valid concern. 40% of their study population having a melanoma that was small like that, I think, advocates for the consideration of smaller lesions and their malignant potential. Um, I think that it was very interesting that he kind of makes a acute argument about the fact that the um, our understanding of where melanomas come from has sort of shifted over time. So I know when I was in residency, and probably even, Luke, when you were in residency, the dogma was that about only 30, 20 to 30% of melanomas arise de novo. And about 70 to 80 percent would arise, sorry, uh, yeah, 20 to 30 percent arise in a pre-existing nevus, my apologies, and 70 to 80 percent arise de novo. So that was the, the logic that was taught for a very long time, um, and I think even while you were in residency, Luke. But uh, recently people have rethought that paradigm, and that possibly might have something to do with improved diagnostic techniques and the fact that more melanomas are being caught when they're small. But there was an article uh, by Simmerman et al. in 2016 in the Journal of Cancer um, Institute that advocated that de novo melanomas are actually more common and also more aggressive than nevus-associated melanomas. So in his research, he actually found that only 20 to 30 percent of malignant melanomas arose within a nevus and 70 to 80 percent were de novo. So Goldsmith in his article says... Most melanomas are going to begin as a de novo based off of our most recent understanding of the pathogenesis of this kind of skin cancer, which means they would start off microscopically. And so with utilizing the diameter criteria of less than six millimeters, you would miss all of those de novo melanomas and possibly miss a therapeutic window where you could successfully treat the patient with a relatively minor skin surgery and without significant morbidity. 
I feel so like I all that... of the authors of these papers would agree that melanomas can be small. And if you think a small thing might be a melanoma, you should remove it. I, I think that's a very clear point. Um, he also emphasized that the AAD task force reevaluated the ABCD criteria in 2015 and found that there was no evidence that ABCD criteria were useful even for a layperson, which I thought was interesting. And the task force had also commented on the need for research on the impact of the darkness of a lesion upon recognition of early melanoma. So if you've been paying attention, you might notice that we're going to shift the meaning of the, the D and the mnemonic. And in fact, the Skin Cancer Foundation now includes darkness as a part of their mnemonic. So they left diameter in there, but it's added now to be a darkened lesion. Uh, our author here with the commentary points out that black color is noticed in about 25% of melanomas. Um, the information on how many melanomas were perceived as dark was not included in Liu et al.'s study, but if 4.5% were amelanotic in that study and 25% had at least a focally black area, then there are a large number of melanomas that must be dark but not black. And so the he, his argument is that the data do not support the use of diameter as a criterion. Get rid and of it, that, he says. And that we should propose to change the D in the mnemonic to darkness so that we can appropriately recognize these small de novo melanomas, which might not only be more common, but might also be more aggressive, according to other data um, presented in some of the research in 2016 by Simmerman et al. So I thought that that was a very interesting article. And you have to remember that darkness is something to pay attention to. Yeah, but what if a patient just has a ton of dark moles? And some so patients do. So I wondered if do. it was just another way of the ugly duckling rule that we learn about, like the dark ugly duckling as opposed to the ugly duckling that's something else. It definitely could be something along those lines. And you do have to be careful that there is a phenomenon histopathologically called pigmented parakeratosis, which you can see overlying melanomas, but can also be present overlying irritated dysplastic nevi. And you can actually have significant onset of pigmented parakeratosis if a patient gets a sunburn or significant sun exposure. So all of these things, I think, have to be taken with a measure of kind of caution and wisdom. But it is a very interesting argument, and we should always rethink things that are held as dogma and make sure that they're still valid. Do you tell your patients about the ABCDEs? We definitely talk about them because I do think that they can be useful to help patients kind of know how to navigate their own self-exam. And I do, even though there has been some literature that in some ways poo-poo's the utility of a layperson-conducted self-skin exam, I have had, as I'm sure most dermatologists have, the experience of a patient who I've told, you know, you have a lot of nevi, maybe they've had a history of melanoma in the past, maybe a family member has, and we instruct them to do their own self-skin exam, and they come in with a lesion they're worried about because of that process, and they're right that it was a melanoma. So I think it's a harmless intervention, so long as patients don't use self-exam as some kind of a replacement for, for a professional skin exam, and, you know, it just cost the person the time that they're looking at their own body, which is, I think, a reasonable thing for a person to do at home and empowers patients a little bit to have some hand in their own skin, skin care. I like to keep it simple. So I usually just, I stick with the E for evolution. So I tell patients to just tell me if there's anything new or changing. I think that that's a great way to do it too. I feel like all the ABCDEs and stuff, that's like a lot to keep track of if you're not a dermatologist who thinks about this stuff all the time. Well, we had uh, an article and a commentary that refuted a, a bit, and we're going to kind of do something similar where we've got two articles, each arguing perhaps a little bit of, of a different point. 
Boy, what a spicy episode of Dermosphere. This I know, is. so much controversy. <laughs> and this uh, this is actually something that's kind of not really related to dermatology, but it's certainly in the public and medical mindset these days because it's about the coronavirus, <laughs> and it's specifically about masking. So this first article is sort of anti-mask, and the second article is sort of pro-mask, but um, it's all a bit more nuanced than that. So the first one we'll talk about is from the New England Journal of Medicine, and it's a perspective, which is kind of like an opinion piece. The title is Universal Masking in Hospitals in the COVID-19 Era. And the authors include Michael Klompas and Erica Shinoy. And the authors are out of Harvard, Brigham and Women's Hospital, and out of the Department of Population Medicine there, um, Harvard Medical School, and the Infection Control Unit and Division of Infectious Diseases at MassGen. So the basic idea here is that everybody's out there wearing masks these days, and the perspective of these authors is that it probably doesn't really work in the sense that they probably weren't going to get the disease anyway, just from casual contact walking around a sidewalk or in the supermarket or something. They say that that might be different if you're in a hospital, because it can certainly reduce the spread from asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic carriers. And there are some quotes in this article that I think are useful and just actually made me feel more comfortable about everything, kind of reduced my anxiety. So they apparently public health authorities define a significant exposure to COVID-19 as face-to-face contact. So I presumably that means no mask, face-to-face contact within six feet of a patient with symptomatic COVID-19. And that face-to-face contact has to be sustained for at least a few minutes. So not just walking past somebody in the supermarket. And apparently some people say it has to be at least 10 minutes. And some people say it has to be at least 30 minutes. So this is somebody you're hanging out with at a barbecue or something and you're just chatting and have are pretending that the world is not a coronavirus world anymore, which we all dearly wish. And so they say that the, therefore the chance of catching COVID-19 from a passing interaction in the public space is therefore minimal. And in many cases, the desire for widespread masking is a reflexive reaction to anxiety over the pandemic. Um, Though they do say later in the paper that that's not necessarily a bad thing. If putting on masks reduces people's anxiety, well, that's a desirable outcome. But the masks themselves might not be doing um, exactly what we thought. So what about this asymptomatic and minimally symptomatic issue? Well, that's a little bit of an elephant in the room when it comes to coronavirus discussions. But they do quote um, one statistic that the prevalence of COVID-19 among asymptomatic evacuees from Wuhan during the height of the epidemic was only 1% to 3%. So I don't know if that's the best numbers we have right now, but um, that's what these guys say from the New England Journal from April. So if you asymptomatic people, 1% to 3% chance of getting COVID from a place where it was rampant. And they say might be different in a hospital. There's lots more face-to-face contact that lasts a long time. Um, I think that employees in a hospital setting might feel more compelled to come to work, um, even if they're having some kind of symptoms that they think, oh, maybe that's just allergies or something like that. So they do say, quote, the calculus might be different in a healthcare setting. Um, They do point out that there may be additional benefits of lots of people's wearing masks, 
They say masks are visible reminders of an otherwise invisible yet widely prevalent pathogen and may remind people of the importance of social distancing and other infection control measures. It is also clear that masks serve symbolic roles. Masks are not only tools, they are also talismans <laughs> that may help increase healthcare workers' perceived sense of safety, well-being, and trust in the healthcare system. I thought this was kind of interesting. Um, I, it was reassuring to me that this business of significant exposure to COVID being face-to-face -face within six feet that lasts for at least a few minutes, that's like not as bad as I thought it would be. Though I guess if I'm walking through the grocery store and somebody next to me coughs as I walk through, even though that's less than a few minutes, maybe that's uh, enough to count as a significant exposure. Um, I shared some of the information from this essay with some um, of my some of the folks in my circle who are not medical and got an interesting varied response so one person was like thanks a lot for sending this out it's good to see something that's at least somewhat grounded in science instead of just knee-jerk reactions and then a couple other people said well I'm going to keep wearing masks because they remind me to stay away from people which is one of the points that the author brought up and somebody else said well why take a risk wearing a mask's not that big of a deal which I also kind of agree with, though those of us who have to wear them all day, you know, can start deciding that maybe our ears would be better off if we weren't wearing them. And then I was talking to one of our chairs, we have uh, co-chairs at our department currently, and sh she was stating that there are institutional policies about what the institution considers a significant exposure. Um, if you were having an interaction with somebody who is tested for COVID a couple days later and is positive. Um, and so if you weren't wearing masks, then you're more at risk for falling into this institutional category where you then can't come to work for two weeks. So you gotta, you gotta abide by the rules of whatever institution you're in as well. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, the hard part about all of this is that this virus is, is very new and we have a very incomplete data set with which to interpret the small amounts of data that we actually have. Um, so a few of the articles that I looked at to kind of clarify my understanding about this, um, one of them was an editorial also from the New England Journal of Medicine that was actually published just two days ago um, by authors Gandhi and Havler discussing asymptomatic transmission, comma, the Achilles heel of current strategies to control COVID-19. And they Just to comment, um, mm -hmm. it's May 30th while we're recording this. So this is something that was published on May 28th, 2020. Yeah, sorry, I forget that it's not instantaneously going out to the peoples. Um, but they pointed out that while we don't have hard data on exactly what percentage of infected patients are asymptomatic, there is clear evidence of transmission from asymptomatic persons. Although, as Luke pointed out, the quality of the interaction may be something that we need to take into consideration. Well, don't also... bring me into this. <laughs> this was uh, Drs. Chinoy and uh, Klompas. Well, as you as you astutely pointed out from the observations in the article you reviewed, how about that? Um, so besides asymptomatic spreaders, which are patients who never feel sick, but are potentially carrying the virus, there's also something called pre-symptomatic transmission. And I think that pre-symptomatic transmission might be even more important. Um, knowing people that I am, you know, personally close with who have been infected with this, not physically close though, my twin sister who lives in Vienna, um, and then uh, another close colleague, 
this virus comes on very, very abruptly and suddenly with symptoms, but there's evidence that patients who have that symptomatic expression of the disease are very likely transmitting the virus for at least a day, maybe a day and a half before their symptoms develop. And so we can't count on the lack of symptoms to protect us from potential viral shedding. Another article that I looked at to kind of figure out what's the purpose of, of mask wearing, how helpful will it be, what does it actually do, was a very interesting research article out of the Journal of Medical Virology. Um, this is by authors uh, King Zima and Jiming Shen. And it is a pretty interestingly and um, elegantly designed study that they did in March of 2020, where they took large syringes and they sort of cut the small bore opening off of the front of them. And then they covered four of these similarly modified syringes, each with a, one of a different kind of mask. So they fitted them with a little syringe version of an N95 and a medical mask, a homemade mask made of four layer kitchen paper and a one layer cloth mask. And I then, bet those syringes were so cute. I hope they put little googly eyes on they them. They did have pictures and honestly, they, I, I found it kind of endearing. Um, and so then they actually aerosolized the viral particles in an airtight bag and then they withdrew the plungers from the syringes to simulate inhalation. And in this study, they were actually able to find that the um, virus in aerosols was blocked at a 99.98% efficiency with an N95, 97% with a medical mask, 90, uh, uh, 95% with a, um, with a homemade paper mask. But interestingly, the one-layer cloth uh, mask also did pretty darn well. So... I was relatively impressed with that. Um, so this what's pretty study, darn well. <laughs> well, it was also in the nineties, so uh, okay. I thought that that was I thought that was pretty impressive. So we can wear masks and look cool too. I mean, you know, it's it's kind of it's kind of an interesting or exciting thing. Um, so basically, the homemade masks um, that were made with four layer kitchen paper and one layer of cloth which a lot of people have been sewing a uh, cloth mask with a pocket where they put in something else to act as a filter. That was 95% efficient at blocking the virus in aerosols. Uh, I guess you could also keep your credit card in there. I mean, you know, it's it's also serves as a pocket. I don't, I don't know if you can breathe through a credit card, but... If um, anyone tries to steals it, then they'll be screwed because maybe you've been breathing coronavirus all over Yes, it. and, you know, I, even though we're not sure how well it sticks to surfaces at this point because that information kind of keeps mutating. But um, bump Okay. Um, uh. <laughs> anywho, so this was a nice experimental approach to demonstrate a practical way that masks might limit the spread of COVID-19. So, you know, I, th I believe that the real answer to how we're going to get through this long term probably lies somewhere in the middle, where when we're around any sort of significant quantity of people having some kind of mask on, even just a simple homemade cloth mask or you know, several people have cute mass-produced ones. I've actually noticed quite the bump in what I would like to call mask fashion in the patients who come into my clinic, where some of them have, you know, superheroes on them, and some of them have cute patterns. And my favorite one so far has been the Baby Yoda face mask, which I've seen a couple of times. And Excellent. I think absolutely adorable. And I personally ordered some fabric masks that have the TARDIS on them from Doctor Who. So I'm eagerly awaiting my receipt of those. But my mother-in-law made me a couple masks that have the TARDIS on them from Doctor Who. So we're on the same page. I can see and, why we're co-hosts. And see, she's going to have, a, you're going to have a 95.15% ability to block virus and aerosols when you wear that. So that's pretty darn good, you know? So 
the I guess the author's point in the first paper was not that masks don't work, but just that they're unnecessary um, for a lot of the reasons that people wear them. But I also agree with um, their points that they quote surface talismans and remind people of the fact that there's still a virus around um, and reminds them to keep a keep a distance and stuff. And I also think that it's like polite, like people think they work, even if maybe they don't work to in the way they want them to. So if they see you walking around with a, a grocery store without the mask, they feel like you're being impolite. And since they feel that way, you kind of are. So it's a way to show some respect for your fellow citizens to be out in a public place and wear a mask. It seems like to actually prevent the spread of the virus, it is the most useful if you're going to be around like a lot of people, which hopefully people aren't so much these days, or if you're going to be at work where you might be interacting with people for longer than a few minutes face to face pretty closely. Yeah, and I, I agree with you that, you know, we still don't understand what quantity of interaction is required for the virus to be actively transmitted. But there are also certain things that are just biological phenomenons of being a human being. So occasionally you're going to choke yourself and you're going to cough unexpectedly, or you're going to have seasonal allergies and you're going to sneeze without much warning. And a person who has a mask on is readily protecting those around them from the possibility of either asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic spread. Uh, so I do think that, you know, if you're out by yourself and you're, you know, walking in the park and you're not congregating with other people and you're being careful not to come within six feet of other people, potentially that might be a time when you can be more relaxed about this. But if you're going to a place where you might theoretically find yourself close to other human beings in this unusual time, the considerate thing, I think, is to wear a mask. All right. You ready to get back to dermatology? Let's get back to dermatology. I've got a really quick little adorable article here. About is one it of as the adorable most... as syringes wearing masks? I don't think it's as adorable as syringes wearing masks or the baby Yoda face mask, but it's still a very cute and nice idea. So anybody who does a lot of skin checks on people who are Caucasian has been confronted with the patient who has, shall I say, readily exercised their melanocytes their entire life through excessive tanning and now has white spots they don't like. So the problem of the idiopathic guttate hypomelanosis and how to take care of it uh, can be quite a conundrum for patients who are cosmetically distressed by the appearance of these lesions. There's not a whole lot you can do. Uh, the lesions won't tan because basically I think of it as if every little idiopathic area of guttate hypomelanosis sort of represents the epidermal melanin unit where you have the one melanocyte sitting with its little dendrite spread like the branches of a tree, trying to give melanin to its surrounding keratinocytes. But these hardworking melanocytes and these people who've been sun tanning their entire lives, they just work too darn hard and they went into early retirement. So you end up with these tiny sort of polyhedral white spots where that melanocyte just said, screw it, I'm going to Cancun. So we end up having all of these little confetti-like white spots. I really like that explanation of it. It's, it, make, it helps patients to understand it. Um, and some patients might try, you know, sunless tanner to sort of cover them up. Uh, some of them do seem to have slightly different areas of keratinization that don't always allow for a uniform color, even with sunless tanner. And so it can be quite cosmetically frustrating. And so Yes, these... I was excited to see this article because until I saw this, I figured there was just nothing you could do about it. There's really not a lot you can do about it most of the time, but this article is quite promising. So they advocate for the use of 50% trichloroacetic acid in the treatment of idiopathic guttate hypomelanosis. The authors are Dr. Maya Vedamurthy and Dr. S.R. Sruthi. This is a very nice publication that's a type of um, writing called a surgical pearl. 
And they basically present the surgical challenge of idiopathic antihabamelanosis. It's common. It causes a leukodermic dermatosis, typically affects those later in their lives, and has multiple discrete round to oval, sharply defined hypopigmented to depigmented porcelain white macules. They're small, 0.2 to sometimes 2 centimeters in diameter, and different modalities have been tried to treat it, but it's very challenging and most of the modalities we've tried in the past have not really been satisfactory. So their solution is to clean the area and apply a 50% trichloroacetic acid with a cotton-tipped applicator, covering the entire lesion and one millimeter of healthy peripheral skin until you get a uniform white frost in about 30 seconds, following which they have the patient apply 2% mupirocin for 7 to 10 days. And here's what it gets interesting. So from the 10th day forward, the patient actually exposes the skin to sunlight for 10 minutes, which feels blasphemous to say as a dermatologist, but I have to remind myself that we use UV radiation to treat psoriasis and other inflammatory skin disease, so I'm sure it's fine. Um, the repigmentation occurred in their little kind of cohort here in all patients between four and six weeks, and the treatment should be repeated after three months if necessary. So I thought this was a lovely idea for how we can potentially help patients with this frustrating skin condition. I haven't really found anything else to be therapeutically beneficial and I have had some patients really distressed about the sort of tattered appearance of a significant burden of these idiopathic guttate hypomelanosis lesions. Um, dispigmentation is one of the sort of evolving edges of the beauty industry uh, where people are really longing to have that nice even skin tone that sort of telegraphs youth and health. And this is an interesting way to theoretically help to encourage some repigmentation of those areas. I think utilizing the skin healing response and maybe bringing those retired melanocytes back from their trip to Cancun. So you get 50% trichloroacetic acid, use like a Q-tip to cover the spot, including one millimeter of peripheral skin, and then you do mupirocin, they use cream, I guess you could use ointment, twice daily for seven to ten days, and after the tenth day, the patient exposes the area to sunlight for ten minutes a day, and four to six weeks later, it's better. Yep. This is out um, of the JAD, I guess we should say, and uh, it's an article in press, so um, I didn't see the, art the author's affiliations, but based on their names, I'm going to guess they're from India. Do you have 50% trichloroacetic acid hanging around in your clinic, Michelle? Interestingly, we have 30% and 70%, so that might reflect a difference in sort of supplier, um, but certainly I, I think you could get it compounded, or you could probably order it from some vendor. We just usually stock the 30 and 70%. What do they do at your institution? You know, I actually don't know. I've never wanted to use it. <laughs> but I did discover after looking at this article that you can buy it on Amazon. It's oh my $15 God. for 4 mLs. The things you can buy on Amazon really scare me sometimes. A while back, they were actually selling filler with needles. Actual hyaluronic acid filler with a needle. Hmm. Well, that is terrifying. Yep. How about 100% trichloroacetic acid? That's also available for $25 for 4 mLs. Oh, good God. I mean, people can get themselves into some pretty significant trouble with these things. <laughs> yes, um, they can. But hypothetically, um, people who know what they're doing, like maybe dermatologists, could go buy some of this stuff and treat their own idiopathic guttate hypomelanosis. All right, I'm going to talk about something else. I'm going to talk about something completely different. A, uh, an emerging allergen. So this is out of the Journal of the European Academy of Dermatology and Venereology. And the title is The Chemical Acetophenone Azine, colon, An Important Cause of Shin and Foot Dermatitis in Children. And the authors include Dr. Dowergade and Dr. Ertz. They're from Belgium and France. 
And this is a case series of six tween boys who had shin dermatitis that was all related to wearing shin pads. Some of these boys also had foot and plus or minus palm dermatitis. <coughs> Excuse me. And the dermatitis sometimes extended beyond the point of contact of the shin pads or their um, shoes, for example. And sometimes the dermatitis showed up on the face, the ears, the trunk, and even became generalized. And then their patch testing showed reactions to this emerging allergen, acetophenone azine, or what they called AA. Um, hello, my name is acetophenone azine, and I'm an emerging <laughs> allergen. Hi, acetophenone azine. <laughs> so interestingly, this chemical is formed de novo during the manufacturing process of ethylene vinyl acetate, which is present in shin pads, sports shoes, and flip-flops. Um, and when I was reading this article and reviewing it, I was wearing flip-flops and so wondered if I was giving myself some foot dermatitis. I accidentally just rang the bell for, for flip-flops. For my own that, personal flip-flops. Yeah, you know, but I think that, you know, the name is something that could become pimpable content because it does seem to be a possibly important cause of allergic contact dermatitis from shin pads and other kinds of uh, rubber things that are used in sporting equipment and things. So what's that allergen again? Acetophenone azine. Woo! Also, I thought it was a nice reminder that allergic contact dermatitis can spread beyond the point of contact mm -hmm. and can even become generalized and show up in completely different places, like on the face or the ears. So presumably that's like an id reaction. I id you not. Oh, so because this shows up de novo as part of the manufacturing process, the manufacturers might not know that it's there. Uh, the authors of this study say that some other studies have shown that this chemical is in higher concentrations in shin pads than shoes. And so presumably the six patients in this series were sensitized by their shin pads. And then after they became sensitized, they reacted to the same chemical that was in their shoes as well. They noted that some types um, of some of these patients had allergic contact dermatitis that resembled subtypes of eczema, like dyshydrotic eczema and pomphalox, and were misdiagnosed in the past. But they all got better after swapping out their shin pads and or using leather inlays in their shoes. The authors remind us that socks may not be effective, as allergens can still penetrate. I feel like I have to tell that to patients a lot. They're like, mm -hmm. how can I be allergic to something in my shoes? I wear socks all the time. Mm-hmm. Which I guess I shouldn't be so grumpy at them, like they haven't read the textbooks. It's just my job to convince them. <laughs> the, so if you are wondering, if you have a patient who might be allergic to acetophenone azine, bad news, patch tests to that chemical are not commercially available. Wow, so wow. the investigators in this study purchased the stuff directly from a chemical supplier. Uh, it's called Sigma Aldrich, and in Saint, it's in St. Louis. And then they diluted it themselves and patch tested it at 0.1% in petrolatum and or acetone. And in addition to using the actual AA chemical, they used material from the patient's shin pads. So they cut out two by two centimeter bits from the interior foam lining and then moistened it with acetone, water and or ethanol. And then in all of these patients, they had reactions to both that bit of shin pad material and to the acetophenone azone azine. Um, and they were both, the reactions were seen on days three to four after patch testing. 
I think this is a really important emerging allergen and something that might help us understand how patients also sometimes get cross-sensitized. So that's a really important concept in the world of uh, atop, uh, sorry, of allergic contact dermatitis, which is when things are present together that can be immunogenic, a patient can start out becoming allergic to one and then gradually become allergic to others. I actually treated a patient when I was in residency under the tutelage of Dr. James Taylor, not the singer, the contact dermatitis specialist. And we had a lovely little boy that had exactly this presentation. He too was a tween who loved to play soccer and had developed rip-roaring dermatitis on his anterior shins, which had then started to generalize. And the parents had the exact same story. They're like, how can he be allergic? He's wearing knee socks underneath the knee pads. And we patch tested him. Of course, we didn't have um, this new chemical, but we did have our standard and expanded tray for rubber allergens and also tested with one of the pieces of the shin pad itself. And he was positive to the shin pad as well as to N-isopropyl N-phenyl P-phenylenediamine, which is used to pigment rubber either to a black or dark gray color. And that can be an important cross-sensitization because that will cross-react also with the P-phenylenediamine that's in hair dye. Most kids used to not dye their hair, but, you know, the sort of like goth thing seems to be circling back. So you might end up with a teenager who used to love soccer suddenly wanting to dye their hair black. And if they had this kind of allergic reaction in the past, you could be in for a world of gothy hurt. Fair enough. I'm trying to think of a good joke about James Taylor. I know he's come up in this podcast before. <laughs> How sweet it is to be patch tested by you. That's pretty good. I like that. So um, I think that it's an important allergen to be aware of, an up-and-comer as one would. Perhaps it will be a contender for the contact dermatitis allergen of the year in the near future. Go AA! Woo! <laughs> All right, so um, I have another article here that is from JAMA Dermatology, and it is in the section of Images in Dermatology uh, by Dr. Chao Wu and Dr. Yu Ping Zhang. And this is discussing a patient who presents with what we used to and I think are now again calling Mikulux disease. Um, it has a lot of other names, as do many things in dermatology. So it's also known as dacrocyaladenopathia or dacrocyaladenopathy. Uh, it presents with abnormal enlargements of the glands of the head and neck, the parotid, lacrimal, and, and salivary glands, and the tonsils may also be involved. When I first learned of this entity as a resident, I was taught that it could occur in conjunction with tuberculosis, leukemia, syphilis, Hodgkin's disease, lymphosarcoma, Sjogren's lupus, or sarcoid. I think that's worthy of the bell. Um, and it may also associate with systemic symptoms, including fever, dry eyes, uveitis, and enlargement of the lacrimal and parotid glands with dry mouth. For a long time, it was believed to be a form of Sjogren syndrome. However, ya Yamamoto et al. Um, had a paper in Modern Rheumatology in 2006 that proposed that Mikulix disease is actually something we should consider as a part of the IgG4-related disease spectrum, which this nice images in clinical dermatology paper then goes over a little bit more. So in this case presentation, they show a 60-year-old man with a 12-year history of bilateral palpebral swelling, dry, dry eyes and mouth. Importantly, his labs had high levels of IgG4 at 1,240 milligrams per deciliter when the normal range is between 10 and 140 milligrams per deciliter, so almost 10 times what's normal. And elevated IgE at a level of 401 micrograms per liter, where normal is 150 to 300. He also had elevated CRP and SED rate, but importantly, negative ANA 
and also negative ENA, which stands for extractable nuclear antigens. So the extractable nuclear ant antigens are things like SSA and SSB, anti-SEL70, anti-JO1, anti-R1UNP, anti-Smith, um, and anti-histidyltransferase. So we'll ring the bell for that too. Those are your extractable nuclear antigens. This patient had none of those in his bloodstream. Uh, and importantly, those would correlate to some of the things that have been thought potentially to cause what we've called Mikulic syndrome in the past. So lupus would typically have a positive ANA. Sjogren's disease could have a positive SSA, SSB. Uh, patients who had one of those inflammatory syndromes might have a positive ANA or ENA, and this patient had none of those. He, had under, he underwent MRI that showed hypoechoic lymph nodes in his right parotid and submandibular region, along with diffuse lesions in the bilateral orbits and lacrimal glands. He had a skin biopsy, sadly, from the right upper lid that was non-diagnostic, but a biopsy from the left lacrimal gland showed massive infiltration with lymphocytes and plasma cells. And on immunohistochemistry, there was an infiltration of IgG4-positive cells, which led to the diagnosis of Mikulic syndrome. He was treated with prednisone that began to give him a partial remission at two months. So the IgG4-related um, dermatoses, uh, as Mogatu would say in uh, Zoolander, are so hot right now. So hot. It's true. So, I just feel like I didn't hear about this IgG4 stuff until a couple of years ago. And actually, in the version of uh, the Bologna textbook that I used in residency, Michalik's syndrome is just listed as a synonym for Sjogren's syndrome. Mm -hmm. And so the igg 4 related syndromes develop tumor-like swelling in multiple sites that is caused by lymphoplasmacytic infiltration along with sclerosis. And the criterion are elevated IgG4 levels greater than 135. Remember that normal ranges tend to 140. And usually in these patients, it's around the 1200 mark as it was with this patient. So almost 10 times the upper limit of normal for IgG4. Along with infiltration of IgG4 positive plasma cells greater than 50% in the organs and tissues involved. So Miculix is sort of now also related to or called IgG4-related acroadenitis and sialadenitis, which is actually easier to say than some of the other names. And it's classified now as a uh, symmetric presentation of enlargement of the lacrimal salivary and submandibular glands. As you just said, it was previously considered a subtype of Sjogren's, but negative ANA, including negative ENAs, which are some of the Sjogren-specific antibodies, an increased level of IgG4 and that infiltration of IgG4-positive cells helps to distinguish it from Sjogren's. The, Do you think that's bell-worthy? I think like, it could be bell-worthy, yeah. It's helpful to know that it's kind of like Sjogren's syndrome, but it has distinct characteristics that you can test for with labs. I always like diseases you can test for with labs. You know, having something that is actually a yes or no answer in dermatology can be a beautiful thing. Uh, so they point out that the palpebral swelling in exophthalmos may simulate other conditions, including thyroid disease or Rosei Dorfman, which can also present with bilateral lid edema. Uh, they also noticed in this presentation and the review of the literature that the patients who have the worst symptoms of this condition may be more likely to relapse. So you have to think carefully about how you're going to treat these patients. Uh, they also kind of clarified the way that we sort of delineate the different IgG4-related diseases. They put them into four different groups, pancreatohepatobiliary disease, retroperitoneal fibrosis and aortitis is the second type, head and neck limited disease, 
associated predominantly with Asian race and female sex is a third type. And then the fourth type is that, cla that classic Michelux disease with systemic involvement. So if you have a patient where you, su you suspect IgG4 related disease, then, you know, you should definitely do labs to check for IgG4 and eosinophilia along with ele elevated IgE. If you're confirming your diagnosis, you might do some imaging studies, which could range from ultrasound to CT scan, MRI, or an FDG-AVID PET CT scan to evaluate for organ involvement. And then you treat these patients usually with anti-inflammatories or immunosuppressives. So most uh, texts advocate to begin treatment with glucocorticoids, as most patients do well, but about 30 to 60 percent will relapse during the taper or after the discontinuation of the glucocorticoids, so you may have to turn to immunosuppressives such as azathioprine, mycophenolate mofetil, or methotrexate. Rituxan can also be used and can help to induce a remission. And again, if you have a patient that has severe symptoms, they're going to be more likely to recur. So, and the reason I would be suspicious for Michelix disease is if they have the swelling of the glands of the head and neck, the lacrimal and parotid glands and so on. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's probably would be enough for me to think, oh, wait, I think I read something about this Michelix disease thing. Let me step out and just remind myself what labs I need to check. And then I feel like I'd probably get room involved if... Um, it turned out that this patient really did have Michelix disease. I feel like it's a little bit more in their, I was going to say bandwagon, but that's not right. In their wheelhouse? In their wheelhouse? I, I, I like that. Um, I, I learned this as a um, derm resident because the, the Michelix sounded like, to me, mucus licks. And so to me, that sort of made me remind, uh, helped to run me, remind me that it was involving salidinitis. And then I, I kind of thought about those little geckos that have those really big eyes and they like always are licking their eyeballs for some weird reason. And so for some reason that helped me to remember it. But another way to think about it is basically it's the presentation that sort of combines the findings of Graves ophthalmopathy with the parotid swelling of mumps and the symptoms of Sjogren's disease. So they have the dry eye and the dry mouth like Sjogren's, their parotid glands are swollen like they have mumps and their eyes are exophthalmic like Graves. So mentioning that uh, Dr. Mikulix's name reminds you of a gecko licking its own eyeballs. Somewhere out there, he's in his grave giving you the thumbs up, I'm sure. <laughs> Maybe he likes those little lizards. Who knows? They are kind of cool. So it's the end of May um, slash beginning of June. So it's graduation season for a lot of people, including woop woop. medical residents and dermatology residents. And uh, Michelle and I are both in academic programs where we have residents who will be graduating. And good news, it sounds like they all have jobs, despite the coronavirus causing some drama for at least some of them. Just the other day, we had a little graduation ceremony for our residents, and because of the coronavirus, we couldn't do our normal thing. But one of the ideas that came out of it, and props to the residency directors for thinking of this, is they asked each of the faculty members to record a little one-minute video of a few pieces of advice that they would give the graduating residents. And the University of Utah here has a lot of faculty. We have like 40-plus faculty. So we ended up uh, creating about a 40-minute video that we... So watched many of us, uh, you know, asynchronously via Zoom or whatever. Um, but uh, a number of pieces of advice were repeated. And so I just kept a little list of advice that came up more than once that I thought might be helpful for me or for other dermatologists or for other residents who are graduating. Um, and so I just wanted to pass those along to you guys out there.
in Dermosphere land. So a couple people said, always look for herpes. <laughs> One of yes. the, and I remember you telling me, Michelle, that everyone has herpes. <laughs> yes, that a good accent. <laughs> um, one of one of our my colleagues said, "If the skin hurts, swab for herpes. If the mouth hurts, swab for herpes. If the patient says it can't be herpes, swab for herpes." <laughs> there were a number of pieces of more like life and career advice rather than specific dermatologic pearls. So there are a couple of people who mentioned to always live within your means. Somebody said, "Always live one standard deviation below your means." And mentioned that the incremental value you would get from spending more money and getting more stuff is not nearly as great as the incremental value you get from avoiding the anxiety associated with that. There were a number of people who talked about being nice to your staff, making sure that um, they always feel respected and that you are grateful for them being there because we're all a team and as a physician you're a leader of one kind or another, because there's all these people working for, for you. There are a number of people, including myself, who gave the piece of advice that even after you graduate, even if you're going off to some rural area and solo practice or something, you're still not alone. You can contact your former residency people, your former faculty, your former co-residents, and run patients by them. Um, I've certainly done that many times. and. I find that, I don't know if it's all physicians or dermatologists or just academic people or whatever, but are pretty open. So if there's somebody that you think is like one of the world experts on bullous pemphigoid or something, and you have a difficult bullous pemphigoid patient, I'm sure that person would be fairly open to a random email coming from you. I've done that stuff a couple times myself. A couple of our faculty mentioned to still take on the challenging cases you know in residency and academic centers we deal with some pretty complex patients sometimes and we hope that that gives our residents the skills that they need to take care of them well so don't be afraid of them take them on and hopefully both the patient and you will be better for it a couple of our faculty mentioned that they found it helpful to remember one fact about each patient and then bring it up when you see them again and follow up. So I know some doctors will write down in like the HPI, patient plays trombone in the symphony or something. And so when that patient returns, they can say, so how's the trombone playing going on? I haven't really used that myself unless something particularly jumps out at me, um, but I do know that some people um, use it well. And it's related to another piece of advice that came from a number of faculty, which is to respect your patients and remember that they're human beings just like we are. Um, there's a temptation, I think, to think about our patients as problems to be solved or a box to check before the end of the day. So it's helpful for that reminder, I think. And then this last piece didn't come from the video. Um, one of our longtime faculty unfortunately passed away a few months ago. And there was a remembrance ceremony for him at the time. And there was including a little video of him kind of giving advice. And one of the things that he said is, patients would rather be loved than cured. He said, don't get me wrong, they want to be cured, but at the end, they, they want your love. And I don't know if you can extrapolate love to mean other emotions or be cared for or something like that, but the, perhaps it is true that people more want to know that you truly care about them than they want their disease to go away. 
I think that's a, a beautiful place to really focus on as you got into your practice is, you know, respecting that sacred humanity of every person who comes to you for the care of their physical body. It's such an intimate and personal thing. And it's such a privilege to be a physician where we get to be a part of everybody's very personal care and their, and their lives. Um, one only piece of advice I would add to that is you will get um, remembrances and letters of appreciation throughout your career as a dermatologist. And you need to keep those. You need to keep those for a couple of reasons. I have a special folder in my office. It's in my file drawer and I just keep putting the stuff in there. Um, and I keep the especially nice ones on a bulletin board in my office. And the reason I think it's important is twofold. One of them is that when you're having a bad day and you inevitably will have a bad day at some point, you're going to have a patient that you feel like you missed something on, or you're going to deal with somebody who's just ungrateful for your care that you went the extra mile and they don't give you any return. You need to remember that you've helped other people. Um, you need to remember that your care and your expertise and the years you devoted to studying to become a good doctor are for a reason. And you're helping assist people to cope with chronic diseases or ease their suffering. One of my favorite quotes, I'm going to paraphrase, is just to know that one life has breathed easier in my little corner of the world makes it all worthwhile. Um, so you keep that folder for those days. You also, as a practical matter, can keep it for when you're going up for promotion or if you're dealing with some kind of award or some kind of a tenure position because they often will request testaments from patients and a well-written thank you card can be included in those materials that you submit for your tenure or promotion. So you know, people will largely appreciate your care. There's going to be a few annoying people you have to take care of. There's going to be a few crazy people as a dermatologist you're going to have to take care of. And that makes our jobs harder. But what makes our jobs worth it are all of those people that we can help and those people who really genuinely appreciate our efforts. Thanks, Michelle. Well, that is all for today. So today, we learned about the ABCDs of melanomas and how they most melanomas still meet a bunch of those criteria, but maybe the diameter is of limited utility. We got a couple different perspectives on masking in the coronavirus age. Maybe it doesn't do what we want it to do, but maybe it's still helpful anyway. And they masks do seem to keep virus from passing through them if you happen to be in a cloud of virus. We learned that you can use 50% trichloroacetic acid to treat idiopathic guttate hypomelanosis. We learned about the emerging allergen, acetophenone azine. Hi, acetophenone azine. And how it's <laughs> present in shin pads. And we learned about Michelux disease, an IgG4-related disease characterized by swelling of the glands in the head and neck and with labs that you can test for. We appreciate all of you listening to us this time around. If you would like to see more episodes, you can find them on our website, dermospherepodcast.com. It also has some bonus episodes. We've had a few of those, including one just uh, released last week. It also is a good way for to get in touch with us if you would like. You can also see more about us and get in touch with us through Facebook and Twitter. We're Dermosphere Podcast on all of those. And I believe we have Instagram, too. We do. And we also have a Tumblr account and a Twitter page. So, you know, we are working to have these social media help us to disseminate our educational information. We're also having some recurring features on our Facebook page, including dermoscopic clinical pathologic correlations and uh, clinical pearls. So please like or follow on social media so that we can continue to share our information with y'all. And thank you for listening. 
Yes, we will see you guys in two weeks. And to all of you graduating out there, wherever you're graduating from, congratulations.